Crawlers. We would be honored if you would join us. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of Dungeon Crawlers, where we have shown up precisely on time. That is correct. We are never late. We are never early. We just show up exactly when we need to, because that's what we do. So whether you're listening to this in the morning, the afternoon, or the evening, or in the middle of the night, that's exactly when you should be listening, because we're precisely on time. So <laughs> if you don't know the reference or don't know what we're talking about right now, well... Watch a movie. On, read a book. Read a book. Watch a movie. Very specifically, a certain book and movie, which would be Lord of the Rings. So uh, this evening, we'll be talking about Amazon's uh, new show, The Rings of Power, mm-hmm. that <clears throat> in a time frame that it that really hasn't been written about i mean there there's notes token of course has notes uh, about this time frame but there's nothing that's been officially written down there's nothing in the cimmerillion and there and back again the lord of the rings or the hobbit series that focuses on this time period which i think is a fantastic idea for the tolkien estate to do because now you you don't run into that problem of well in such and such on such and such page it speaks about this well we don't need to run into that so from that perspective as a writer and a creator i think they made a brilliant choice by going to this location in time in the lore of middle earth and the rest of the planet because we see more than the planet that i i may have just stalled this whole conversation out <laughs> No, no, th- I felt very much the same way that you stalled the conversation. No, I felt very much the same <laughs> way, just teasing, that, um, you know, I, th- this is going to damage my nerd cred, and I totally get that, but I I still, to this day, in my 40s, have never actually read the books. I've read, I read a small portion of Fellowship, and I have not since picked it up. I, I was reading it, reading it at a time when I was about to move, and then we moved, and then I never picked it back up. Mm. Uh, so I am not familiar with the Silmarillion. I am not familiar with the way that Tolkien expresses the world in, you know, his, in his, uh, uh, magnum opus that he was, that it was demanded of him to break up into three parts. You know, um, I, I don't know that, but, uh, as someone who is a fan of the films and a fan of the lore, Watching this series and watching them dig into like the early, the the beginning history of the world, the idea in the very first episode, the idea that there was no darkness, there was only light. And they have the tree of life. They have like an Yggdrasil um, representation, and that's what gives light to the world. And then they talk about the infection, the, the, the taint of Morgoth, and you can see how the darkness... Uh, encroaches on the light and so on like all of that i i love that they brought that symbolism and and that iconography into the lore uh and it gives it gives a solid in my opinion it gives a solid basis for like all the stories to follow and then for for my part i i have read the three lord of the rings books and i did read the hobbit um, I am aware of some of the stuff in the Silmarillion and the uh, appendices, uh, but I'm not a major Tolkien lore uh, kind of person. Uh, from what I understand for the Amazon show, uh, The Rings of Power, um, is it's just like Daniel said, they, they chose a period that there hadn't been a lot written about. 
the source material for this are the appendices where Tolkien just wrote down straight lore in an encyclopedia article type format rather than a story. There are a few key historical figures named um, and the major historical events. What Amazon did, they drew strongly from uh, the appendix and from some little pieces. They had hooks and tie-ins to the Silmarillion, and from that they made a new story out of whole cloth. Many of the main characters in this show were created specifically for the show and are not creations of Tolkien. Mm -hmm. They um, also <laughs> crammed a bunch of things together. So the timeline doesn't precisely fit with um, the continuity of, of the books. But again, they were trying to just tell a story and get it up on screen. We know the Rings of Power were created. We know that it was a very bad idea and that, <laughs> that Sauron was behind all of this for him to come to power and the elves had a particular grudge against him. Uh, and so, but, but how that actually happened, the path that led to that point had not been explored uh, by Mr. Tolkien um, in great depth. And wow. that's, and that's where Amazon took this. And I think that's probably the biggest draw for this show is how did the one ring come to be? Yeah. And well, what does it do besides turn you into a wraith? I mean, really, I mean, that was the draw of the prequels. Everyone wanted to see how this little boy became Darth Vader. Yeah. And we kind of have that same syn uh, synergy going on here. You know, we know that the rings of power is what really brought things down and, you know, why Golem is Golem and, and so on and so forth. But how did that how did that come to be? You know, because the dwarves got rings, the elves got rings, the humans got rings, you know, the ring race showed up. So but how how does that happen? So they definitely have a lot of time to be able to build up that story. I mean, this is something that we can see go on for years. The really cool thing about this is, I mean, so I'll admit right now I've drugged my feet on this. Um, after watching the Will of Time series, I just had no desire to jump into another Amazon fantasy based series. I don't blame you. However, I'm going to say it here. I regret it now because they've done <laughs> a great job. And I think why I can say that is because there is no source material, really. It's these appendices where it's just kind of dates and there isn't a thing of, okay, they're going to screw this up if they don't do it right. Whereas with Will of Time, there were lots of things they monkeyed around with, which really ruined the story. You know, the basis of the dragon, you know, that it can be male and female when it can only be male. Um, the weird relationship with... Um, Lorraine uh, and Swan. Yeah, yeah. And from what I can tell, there's none of that forced um, agendas into this film, this, this series. It's staying true to what it is. I know some people are kind of upset that some of the elves have different colored skin, but I don't care. I really don't care. I just think that's a pigmentation issue. Who cares? And and, and it totally makes sense that they would. I mean, I yeah. uh, my my friend who's a, a very 
he he is a big uh, Tolkien fan. He's like nowhere in the books does it actually describe elves as being white or Caucasian in appearance, yeah. right? Like nowhere in the books does it prevent them from having di- different levels of melanin. And I totally agree with that. Yeah. I uh, we, we've talked on the show before about sort of the dangers of what we sometimes refer to as stamp collecting, or you know, uh, what the more sort of like technical parlance might call virtue signaling. But um, but the truth is. Uh, they they did that thing where they incorporated people of of different ethnicities in our real world as actors for characters in this fictional world, yeah. and they did so brilliantly, organically, and believably. Yeah, no, I agree. So let's let's dive into the story here. We've all talked about the story uh, quite a bit in this. Let's see what they made of the little hints and the material that they had. Uh, so we'll go through this just real quickly, maybe five, maybe five minutes on each of these. But the main storylines uh, of the episode, uh, we ha- the elves have a problem. Yeah. Uh, and this is where Elrond shows up. Uh, Elrond uh, ends up working with the great elven artisan Celebrimbor uh, on assignment from King Gilgalad uh, to... They were supposed to be working. It was the assignment was started out being one thing, but turned into something else as Gilgalad revealed the true purpose. The elven race is dying. They're losing the light. And this has to do with stuff from the Silmarils. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but they're supposed to work on finding a way to restore the light to the elves or else their race is ended. So that's the big challenge that that Elrond and his are, is facing. That's the main that's the main focus of of his line, uh, his story Real quick, arc. If we haven't already said this, folks, spoilers. There's going to oh. be. Sp- oh yes, yeah. <laughs> spoilers. Th- this whole episode is going there. There is nothing that will be unspoiled. There there will be a tag on 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 the graphic, but just in case you don't see the graphic, yeah. Spoilers. So so uh, so back to Elrond, and he's a friend with. Durin and apparently all the dwarves in the royal line are named Durin. <laughs> <laughs> so Durin and his father Durin and his brother the other Durin. How does that right. feel, Krebs? <laughs> that feels familiar. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So let's talk about his story. So you've got Elrond working within Elven politics and trying to be um, keep his you know oaths of fealty to his king, and then he also has this great friendship with Durin and. The dwarves are a little ticked off at the elves, um, and uh, and yeah, we'll get it. We'll talk about Durin's story next, but just Elrond and his relationship with Durin and uh, Celebrimbor and the king. What do you guys think of that story? Quick takes. So, honest. Okay, so this this is my honest opinion. I feel like the elves have the weakest storyline, in, in my opinion. Um, and, and, and I don't know if this is done intentionally uh, as, as a collector of writers or if it's because they don't know how to handle elves as a, as a whole. I do appreciate and I like the fact that there is this animosity between the races. I mean, that's very present in, in the lore as well as, as the stories. We see that in a lot of other, um, you know, fantasy based stuff where, you know, elves have this haughtiness, haughtiness mm-hmm. and and dwarves, they're so hot yeah and, and humans, there's just this 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 ambivalence so i think they do a really good job there well where 
you know, and, and I do appreciate that there is that relationship between Elrond and Galadriel. We see that very early on, but we also see that in the later films, um, you know, especially in the Hobbit movies where she, you know, Galadriel's at the same place. So I like how they preface that. Um, so that there's that relationship there. There's that bond and it makes sense why she's there later on. The interesting thing for me, though, is this unique relationship he has with the dwarves, with the Prince Durin. Um, so I would like to know, I, it, and in some ways that kind of, I think maybe that's the door that makes it so that the dwarves are there during the fellowship. That's how they got, that's how they got there, because Elrond has this relationship uh, with them. But it was really interesting how you know, he walks in and he, he's like bragging that he has this great relationship with the dwarves and it's pretty much like, go away. Well, no, <laughs> I, I want to meet the prince. No, he says, go away. He doesn't like you. You know, and he has to invoke a rite, a ritual to even get in. And then you find out why. And it's really because the, you know, the prince, his feelings were hurt. And because Elrond didn't show up to his wedding. And it's a, I can relate to that. It it became it went from this weird animosity between races to wow, this is that has nothing to do with it. This is about a friend that has been hurt because his friend didn't show up to his own wedding and then hasn't been around for the last twenty years. You know, if if I had a friend that hadn't shown up for twenty years, I'd be probably really hurt and pissed off too. So I really liked how they brought that down instead of this weird animosity between elves and dwarves. Yeah. What about you, Krebs? What did you think of that story? So uh, I I really appreciated the representation of the elves. Now, the elves, the elves are interesting because they have such long lives that their perspective on urgency is unique, right? Like most almost of the time. Almost as bad as an ant. I know. <laughs> almost, almost. More like Ogier. Um, <laughs> you know, they... They have the they have this sense. In fact, actually, I don't think they even know what urgency is until one, they're facing Morgoth, and two, they're facing the diminishing of light. Right? Yeah. These are the things that make things urgent because it it like nullifies their ability to exist. Um, and in that way, I think they get a taste of what it's like to be human or dwarf. I do also love the relationship between Elrond and Durin. Um, I love that it's it's like true friendship. The way that they represent the dwarves, there is passion, there is explosive emotion, not necessarily irrationality, just a magnification mm-hmm. of emotional consequence, right? Yeah. And then and then with humans, humans are that middle ground between elves and dwarves, but they kind of combine the that rashness that you might perceive in dwarves. Um, they they combine that with um, sort of the nobility, for lack of a better term, of the elves. Dwarves are noble also. They're just, I, I guess, uh, maybe noble's not even the right word, but there's... It there's manifests a, in a different way. For it them. does manifest yeah. in a different way. There's there's honor and there's integrity, right? Yeah. But yeah. there's regalness. There's there's regalness and nobility in the elves, and the, and the humans are kind of the middle ground. Um, the humans, interestingly enough, while they kind of get bagged on, by the other races, you know, for for being short-sighted or for being greedy and lusty and things like that. The humans, it would appear, might arguably be the most affected 
by the decisions of the elves and the dwarves. Now, they're all in the same world together. I get that. But the humans have, I think, just as much at stake, if not more so than either one of the races. And they seem to have less to do in terms of deciding power, but they have so much to do with taking action. So you have like this really beautiful, if you could take a yin yang and instead of having two halves, you have three thirds. It, they've really done a fantastic job of building this world around these three thirds. And then they introduce the goblins and orcs, the more, the Morgoth army and the Harfoot and Halflings, who who try both both of whom are not like like the Harfoot try to like abstain from the world. You're getting ahead of me, Josh. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I know. But but the point that I'm trying to make here is is they do a fantastic job of creating um an almost symbiotic relationship between these three primary races. Um and I, lo- I love the relationship between Elrond and Durin and the elves and dwarves in general. I really do. And I think you hit a, a solid point why the elves, I feel like, aren't as fleshed out is because that that, that urgency. They don't really have it. You know, uh, that is the one interesting uh, characteristic that Galadriel does have. Yes. Is, I mean, she is just pounding the pavement because of this quest um, that she picked, you know, she she picked up the torch from her her brother um that she just has this sense of urgency that it's yeah for for her i'm not sure that it's a time-based urgency but more a driving motivation she's seeking vengeance her her blood is running hot we'll get to her story in a minute but we mentioned dwarves and and the dwarves and Durin's story is intertwined very tightly with Elrond, although Durin has his own moments and he has yeah. to deal with dwarven culture uh, as well. And for me, one of the things I loved about this was that friendship from the beginning of the of the series. The friendship is wounded. It's still there, but it's wounded. And you see the healing that takes mm-hmm. place between these two these two men and the really deep and abiding friendship love that they have for each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even though they are different races, they have very different approaches to things. Uh, It it was crabs. You mentioned the nobility of the elves, the honor of the dwarves. And um, there were a lot of times when Durin said some pretty harsh things to Elrond uh, and Elrond handled it with extreme grace. Oh yeah, he did. And yeah. and understanding. And there were times when Durin had to swallow his pride. Sometimes the prodding of his wife, but he swallowed his pride and uh, you know yielded to Elrond as well. So the 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 story with Durin and the dwarves. Durin's got a secret, and his and he's kind of caught between these two obligations of honor. Um, he's got a, he, you know, they've, they've discovered this new ore and he's not supposed to tell his friend, but then they find out that that's what the elves need to live. So, uh, give us your one minute impression of, of that series. Daniel, did you, do you have a comment or do you want to? Uh, yeah, I was going to jump into the comment real quickly. Uh, the other thing that I really liked about the dwarves is you really see this, uh, you know, this level of equal equalness between the you know the men and the women you really see it in Duran's relationship with his wife mm-hmm. i mean she holds her own against him I she's mean, a he, fabulous character yeah i mean you you get you you're told really 
quickly that she is low ranking. You know, she was not a princess or anything like that, but he, she caught his eye and he married her, but that doesn't make her any less, you know, in, in a lot of history, you know, we have these rules and, you know, a prince can only marry a princess or whatever and stuff like that in this, in Dwarven society, in this case, no, it doesn't matter. You're married to the prince. That's it. You're his wife. You are part of nobility. And I like that. Not only that, man, she put him in his place many times. And not only that, she would bowl right out lie to Elrond's face, you know, in so much like you dare, uh, you know, accuse me of, you know, lying to you in my own home. And she was <laughs> because her priority was her husband and her kin yeah. and, and the kingdom. And I, I love that. I love that. Um, that despite those things, she held true to those things. And even after that, you see a, a conversation with her speaking with, with her husband. And he's like, man, you, you are a wily one. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the things that I love about that portrayal of the character is that so often in media we see portrayal of like, um, you know, you can go from the classic 1950s daddy knows best all the way up to now and you will find there are common depictions of women secretly steering the ship you know, under the masthead of their husband or like their husband will make one decision and then they'll go behind their husband's back and then they will make a different decision and it, and it saves the day and then the husband takes the credit or maybe, you know, they have an argument or whatever. But the point, the point is that the common depiction is that the wife trusts the husband until she doesn't and then she'll just do whatever she thinks is best. Yeah. And she seems to be an, an infallible source of wisdom. In this one, uh, there isn't that. This depiction is she really is his ride or die. And she will absolutely do everything necessary to preserve his integrity and his character yeah. and to support him in what he thinks is best because she believes in him. She trusts him. So, yeah, I, I love that they depicted it that way and not just like, oh, he's some silly, you know, completely flawed male. Let yeah. the let the perfect female in her wisdom fix it all. Well, and, and that's the thing I hate about a lot of these newer sitcoms. The dad is a bumbling idiot. Always. Commercials, sitcoms. Yeah. yeah, I just hate how that is because we, you don't need, you know, in this case, you did not need to reduce Durin to a bumbling idiot. And she's the one that's pulling all the strings. They are equals. Yeah, they are both equals. He is just as brave, intelligent and forthright. We see that when he d goes into the collapse to, to rescue the other dwarves and he works hard to, to save them while at the same time she is at home praying and worrying for his safety and the safety of the other you know dwarves it's not just him and they are definite equals and i love that because that's how it should be yes wonderful um so let's get to uh back to the elves again uh one of the main elven characters from the movies galadriel Yes. But with the Gladriel is very different in this show than she was in the movies. Uh and so I've got some thoughts on that, but I want to hear what, what you guys um what you guys think first. So Galadriel's story is one of vengeance. She is seeking Sauron. She's feels like she's having to bear the quest uh that her brother had to fulfill his his mission uh because he was slain in in battle uh she carries his knife with him with her as she goes uh, and that knife pl 
plays quite a role uh, throughout the series. Yeah. Uh, and so she's looking for, specifically she's looking for Sauron so that Morgoth and his army can never come back. Yeah. Krebs, what, what's your one minute take on, on that story arc? Uh, what I love about Galadriel is that she shows that elves actually have dimension, that they're not just high and mighty uh, regal creatures who have no real true empathy for other races, um, but uh, also that they have no true passion other than just, you know, preserving the light so they can carry on into infinity. Uh, Galadriel shows us, I think in the same way that Spock shows us that Vulcans can have feelings, uh, and, the, and and Romulans show us what Vulcans would be like if they had unfettered feelings, right? Um, I think Galadriel shows us that elves are capable of great passion, of great anger, of vengeance, and of error. Uh, you know, Elrond shows us graciousness and sincerity. Galadriel shows us fury and passion, both for the good and possibly for the bad. Right. What about you, Daniel? No, I, I like that. Um the really great thing about her character uh, is we are going to get a solid character. We're going to see an elf that we've never really seen. I mean, most books depict elves as these all-seeing, all-knowing type beings because they've had that long lifespan. You know, we see her as a, a child. She lived in the land of undying and, you know, where the light was always present and she left with her family and she she had to go to Middle Earth and pick up the you know the the sword her brother carried and because he he died um, and she has that vengeance she has that rage but this gives us an opportunity because we've seen where she's at and where she's you know where she has is at later on in the books I think what we're going to see is a really well-developed character. She's going to have those pitfalls. I mean, we've already seen some now. She's going to have a lot of errors and mistakes. So when we see that all-knowing and wise version of Galadriel that is calm, that is, you know, whispering to Gandalf to have him maneuver places, it's because she has that wisdom because she's made those mistakes. She's made those errors. She's had to go through those trials herself. And she's, she doesn't do it from a place of I'm better than you. It's from a place of I've been there. I've gone through that. Let's try something different or let's go a different way because we want, we want what's best for middle earth. And I think one of the other things that I really love about her story, I think the thing that attracts me to her story is that it's not just a story of vengeance. It's a story of redemption. We've talked about how much we love redemption stories, right? And this redemption is not just her, her quest of vengeance. is not just about saving the world. It's about redeeming herself from her own perceived failure uh, and the failure of, of other elves, but it's her failure for letting her brother die. Uh, And so uh, this is a story not only of revenge, but of redemption. You know, the the Galadriel of Rings of Power is very hard to recognize in the Galadriel of Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, not Fellowship, the Lord of the Rings series. Uh, she and a lot of and I remember hearing a lot of complaints in the first couple of episodes as we don't recognize this Galadriel. What, what have you done to this beloved character? Uh, I disagree with that. And here's why. Yeah. The Galadriel in the, in the TV series. She 
had the loyalty of her men and she lost it mm-hmm. because of her uh her narrow tunnel vision focus on this one mission and it went she went further than her men were willing to go not that they were going to mutiny against her or fight her or anything it's just we can't follow that order sir you know and eventually she's forced to give up her quest and then she sent back to valinor and everybody else on the ship is having this religious experience and she's like i can't let it go and she'd rather swim across the ocean than go to the blessed lands the far isles right um and she is so focused on trying to track down Sauron, she, you know, messes with some of the politics in Numenor. She, you know, makes a miscalculation in the battle against the uh, the orcs, not realizing that this whole thing has been a manipulation and a setup from the beginning. And there's a number of things where she made mistakes along the way, but she also began, had to work with the little people. I don't mean Harfoots. I mean some of the people that aren't, uh, the nobles. This is just the regular every every man, right? Yeah. And in the movies, you mentioned there's a certain haughtiness that elves have, and Galadriel is certainly regal, yeah. ladylike, just this epitome of beauty and grace. But she was not offended by uh, Gimli, mm-hmm. uh, and just he she charmed the. You know, charmed the whiskers off of him. Uh, and she also recognized the hobbits. Yeah. And she was very kind. And she spoke to them as as peers, as equals, rather than talking down to them as many other uh, elves had. Yeah. And so I see that. That's the tie, for in my mind, between the Galadriel of the movies and the, and the, the other show. Galadriel has a journey of her own to make because she wasn't born Galadriel the Queen. That's right. That's right. And so this is her journey and her evolution. And because of the experiences that are shown in this TV series, that's why she's one of the few elves that still has a connection with the the little, the lesser people. Yeah. Well, and this is something that uh, people need to realize. Uh, timeline wise, this series started a thousand years before The Hobbit. Mm-hmm. That is a huge time span. Huge. So, of course, she is not the same. A thousand years, I granted a thousand years to the elves in this in the Lord of the Rings uh, universe is a drop in the bucket, but that's a lot of time to change, to grow, to develop, and you know we're we're seeing how she's connecting with with the humans. Mm-hmm. We've seen we're seeing how you know I, I'm sure we're going to see further and further, you know how she makes those connections with the hobbits with the dwarves, with the humans, with other elves, as she rallies them around the banner as things become more more and more dark. Um, because, you know, a thousand years is a long time. And, you know, we're just scratching the surface with this first season. Yeah. So, um, we, so let's talk about another story arc here, the Harfoots. Oh, the Harfoots. The Harfoots are the... Uh, predecessors of the the hobbits and it seems that their storyline 
doesn't intersect many of the other storylines. Did you find in these episodes any places where their where their line touched any of the other stories that are going on here? That's question number one. And then question number two, uh, what were some of your, you, you, in, in one minute or less, what were some of your uh, favorite um, spots with them? And I'm going to tie in the Harfoots and the Stranger. Meteor crashes to Earth, and it's the Stranger. Okay, right. so the Strangers and the Harfoots. Daniel. So, I honestly, it, my favorite out of all the storylines in the series for this season is the Harfoots. I think they are the most developed characters in the series so far, and I think they paid a lot of attention to the minute details and things like that because they're setting up for something big. Um, and, and obviously, there is something big because you know meteorite strikes the ground the man shows up meteor man um i really loved the the, these characters and the development and the the painstaking details i mean so much so there you know there are flowers and trees in there and their their carts their caravans like fold up i mean you see hunt the first time we see them is after some hunters have walked away and they just kind of fold out shop and it's like there's a whole village there and like what the heck that wasn't there a second ago. Um, so I really loved the characters, especially uh, Nori. I think Nori is a fantastic character. Oh, she's wonderful. Um, not only that, I have a few theories with Nori that somewhere that Nori is the long descendant of Bilbo and Frodo. Hmm. I would have to assume. And that the meteor man is actually Gandalf is my theory. Oh, the- that's interesting. Because we do I was, know. I was going to ask you, Daniel, what your theory was, who you thought the stranger was. Because I do believe, you know, because Gandalf was a, Val- a Valar that, that came to Earth because of, uh, of Sauron and stuff like that. And there's a lot of things that are kind of hinting at that because we know that Gandalf has a very special relationship with the hobbits. This would make sense. They're the ones that found him. Nori be- befriended him helped him when he was trying to identify who he was. Cause I'm, I would assume that transformation from a godlike being to more mortal would be difficult. Um, you know, it's kind of like quantum leap, you know, you get zapped back in time and you lose your brain becomes Swiss cheese. Uh, and it, not only that, he's constantly wearing a grayish colored robe mm. blanket. So it makes me, and some of the looks, the way his hands, I mean, the way his hands are kind of covered up, especially when he's holding the firefly, looks very similar to Gandalf. It would also tie in when in uh, The Hobbits, where you see Gandalf speaking to the, uh, was it a firebug or a, a moth? Moth. Because we see him speaking to, to the fireflies. He, has a, he can speak insect. So I could be totally wrong and totally off, but I feel like we're, they were getting those little breadcrumbs to tie in that that is who it is and that there is a much bigger importance with Nori and her lineage. Uh, That's an excellent point about Nori and possibly being the great ancestor of Bilbo. Um, I could see a world where Nori is the great ancestor of Samwise Gamgee, Um, but it doesn't matter how you slice it. I agree with you, Daniel, that like the way they treated the Harfoots was so beautiful and unlike you know the criticism that people cannot see the Galadriel of this show evolving into the Galadriel of the films or the books um 
one, I, I'm with you, Matai. I I disagree. I think that's I think that the Galadriel of the show is what makes the evolution into the film and the book so astounding and beautiful, right? Uh, but with the Harfoots, there is a clear path from who they are in this series to the halflings that we know yeah. in in the books and in the movies. Uh, it, it's and and you you can see where they start and you can see where the halflings are and there's like this beautiful evolution of society that occurs in between Mm uh i i love the attention to detail i love that they kept them kind of true they made them i I think the best way to describe them is they're probably the most organic race in the in the show and matai you were asking did you find that the harfoot storyline intersected with any of the other storylines um and the answer is yes saurons um that is the only storyline that intersects all other storylines. Yeah. Uh, so okay, I'll take well, that. And, yeah. and I think that that storyline intersects everywhere. I th- I think that is the point because he's the common antagonist, right? Yes. Like he's the common enemy. Uh, and I totally understand that. But I was just thinking in my head. I was visualizing if every one of the quote unquote good guy storylines was a vertical line or or somewhat vertical and some of them start to like lean toward each other or even intersect and then you have the harfoots which seem to be completely separate of the other races you can take the sauron storyline and you draw it horizontally and it runs across all the other storylines because it has to i can see that uh i you know i disagree a little bit uh considering the harfoots um i i think that that may be an area where the Amazon writers made a mistake. Oh, interesting. Um, I, I love the characterization of the people uh, for the most part, but there was one fatal flaw. Okay. They talk about nobody walks alone, and then they have a ceremony about all the people they left behind. <laughs> okay. And uh, they've even, one of the ways that you get punished in that society is they take the wheels off your caravan so that you get left behind. Mm-hmm. And so, I, and I see that that was not a Tolkien thing. That was one of the things that were made up by the Amazon writers. And I think that they really didn't handle that very well. It was such a conflict uh, within their, their, a contradiction, excuse me, a contradiction within their own culture that really made it hard for me to like the Harfoots as much as I really wanted to, with the exception of Nori. Because she didn't buy into that crap. And she was, she was, yes, I love uh, these people. The stranger, the stranger was very interesting. And that was somebody that I wanted to, I wanted more clues. I wanted more stuff to figure this, uh, who this person uh, was. And it's fine. It's not revealed until the final episode um, who the stranger really is. Um, and yeah, I'm not sure how much I want to say about that with, uh, Daniel not having seen the last episode yet. Yeah. So, so folks, I, I have not seen the final episode. That's why I can still have my theory and maybe it's right. Maybe it's wrong. I don't know. Um, no, I, I like the contradiction. I know that sits wrong with you, but as a writer, you know, society has their own rules and their laws. And yes, they're saying no one gets left behind. But you still have to have consequences for things that are bad. You know, like you brought a, a hunter into our midst. You know, part of that consequence is you're at the back of the caravan. And if you can't keep up, sorry. Um, 
yes, it sucks. It's a it's a contradiction to that rule. But at the same time, there has to be consequences. And that shows how bad that consequence is. If they don't leave anyone behind that, if you get left behind because you get stuck at the back, back of the caravan, that's 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 bad. The thing I did like about them remembering, I don't think those were people that got left behind those. They were remembering people that they had lost. That was a, a, a way of them remembering those individuals. And then they told their story, you know, someone got ate by a, a bear or no a wolf, you know, and it was a remembrance of that or pe- that some people got lost. That was a way since they were nomadic, they didn't have a cemetery they could go to. And that was their way of remembering those people that were lost to them. Yeah, and I I think I'm also with Daniel on this one, where uh, I disagree that it's a contradiction. Uh, As I heard them say the philosophy over and over again, nobody walks alone, things like that. My interpretation was it was more like a philosophy of security and a philosophy of the known versus the unknown, as opposed to a philosophy of integrity and character. It was one of those things where it's like, nobody walks alone because that's not safe and that would break down our tribe. So everyone is required to stay together, which means that since the tribe made that decision, the tribe can equally make the decision that they're going to cut somebody off. So I, I did not see it as like, I didn't see it in the Samwise light of like, uh, you know, Frodo says, no, Sam, I'm going on alone. And he goes, of course you are. And I'm coming with you. It wasn't like, <laughs> yeah. it, it wasn't that. This was more of a philosophy of fear. This was a philosophy of uh, we all of us stick together because that's how the tribe survives. And we don't separate from each other. Anyone who's willing to separate is too selfish to be part of the tribe anyway. Or if you violate the tribe's trust, we're going to cut you off because you're a threat to a tribe. So I I found it to be more along those lines as opposed to like the marine mentality of no man left behind kind of concept. Yeah, I mean, I mean, how many times have you gone to a a scout camp and you had to do your swim check? You had to have a swim buddy. You couldn't swim buddy. And I think it was definitely very along those lines. And I do agree that if you threaten the collective, the whole, there has to be a consequence. Yeah, I I still don't like the consequence for somebody who simply sprained his ankle. Um, well, <laughs> I, I I just I'm gonna say I didn't like that part about about the Harfoots. Yeah, I think it was it wasn't the spraining the ankle it was the fact that Sh- Nori brought a stranger into their well, midst. But even before the stranger showed up, they were saying about how worried they were going to be if he couldn't pull the wagon. Um, yeah. So I, well, I don't. They, they were but, worried he was going to fall behind and they'd lose yeah. him. But and let, I get that. Let's move on to the humans. So we've, right. got, we've got three different stories involving the humans. First, let's talk about the great kingdom Numenor oh. under Queen Mirio, uh, this seafaring country. You meet uh, characters like Elendil and his son Isildur, uh, and. There's all kinds of stuff going on there. You've got a senile and dying king. There are politics uh, going on. And you've got this group of, of humans. Well, the Numenorians were kind of like the ubermensch of, uh, of Tolkien's world. They're, 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 some, they're somewhat superhuman in that they are like the, the best genetic crop, I guess yeah. you could say. Um, and this is the people from whom uh, Aragorn uh, descended. Uh, Aragorn. 
Aragorn, excuse me. Uh, yeah, not the dragon. Sorry, people. Aragorn. Uh, Strider. Let's just call him Strider. Uh, yeah, Strider. From whom he was descended, and he has a longer life than men, but much shorter than elves. Yeah. Uh, and why he had such great strength and endurance um, was because he was Numenorian, one of the last. Uh, so anyway, uh, so you have this island. Um, Galadriel is rescued by Elendil and taken there uh, with Halbrand, who we'll get to in a moment. Uh, but let's talk about the Numenorians. All right. You've got Farazhan, the counselor. You've got Queen Muriel. You've got the dying king. You've got Elendil and his children, uh, Isildur and his problems with his friends. And the city itself has its flaws and its virtues. So, again, one minute or less, Krebs. Tell me what you thought about that story. Uh, I love the treatment of Numenor. I love that we got to see it uh, in its in its living state as opposed to just whispers of legend. You know, Aragorn is impossibly old for his for his physical appearance and strength and ability. And now we get to see what the Numenorian people really are like. Um, I liked that we had a queen regent. Um, that was taking the place of the dying king. I like the role that the dying king plays. Um, makes it almost um, uh, Hamlet-esque uh, to a certain degree, but uh, to a very loose degree, mind you, but uh, plays a very cool role later on. Isildur's sister, which I believe is an injected character, but you know, to no, to no fault, um, Isildur's sister is an interesting character that doesn't get a ton of screen time, but ends up being a vehicle for change in the story. Uh, I the the whole experience in Numenor, like when they first showed up, I kind of I, I I gasped a little bit sitting there in my living room at the grandeur of Numenor. So I. I, overall, I loved the representation, the iconography, the art direction, and the character representation. I thought it was great. No, I'll have to agree on that. The The other nice thing is we actually, the nice thing about this series is we got to see outside of Middle-earth. Yes. You know, and going there to, to Numenor was, was wonderful. It was nice to see that. It was nice to see, because... You know, all this time it's it's been words on pages. Yeah. And now we got to see. Yeah. You know, granted, it may not be the same that Tolkien envisioned, but it still was beautiful. It reminded me a lot of uh, Minotaurists. You know, but you know, on a beach, really. I mean, it had <laughs> that grandeur. It had that beauty. The the costumes were wonderful. Uh, I really enjoyed the way they made them look. It looked very similar but unique, very seafaring, especially in the coloring. I like the fact that they had uh, the, the tree, uh, you know, and, and the symbolism to that. And it was made very well known that they had supported the elves. And that was why they were so special. And, you know, and there is some confrontation. And I like that in the story where, you know, Galadriel showing up was a problem but eventually, you know, she won out. But it came from her becoming humble, you know, because she tried to do it by force and that didn't work. But when she humbled herself and really understood what was going on with these people, then, you know, things started happening, especially when the tree started weeping its leaves. 
Um, Another aspect that I like just very quickly is uh, the politics and the societal system, the economy, even the the guild um, memberships and apprenticeships, like the societal system worked. Uh, It was believable. It was it was realistic. Uh, And I love that they were able to express that through action and Mm -hmm. not just a ton of exposition. No, they did that. I agree. They did that really well, especially with the guild pins, you know, instead of like giving us long diatribe of, well, if you want to be part of the guild, you need to get this guild. It was like, where's your guild pin? Can't hire you without a guild pin. The you Vogon know? step in and it's like, you need the chartreuse form. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It was, it was very simple. I mean, and again, when you can push the story along through action, it works so much better. Yeah. Uh, another uh, storyline of the humans where Numenor, their conflict was mainly political. There's another group of humans in the Southlands. And the main character of that story seems to be Bronwyn. She's mm-hmm. got a son, Theo, and a crush on a cute little elf named Erendir. Uh, mm-hmm. The elves having been set there to watch over these humans. Yeah. Because these are the descendants of the human allies of Morgoth. And the elves simply don't trust humans. They think that all the humans are bad because how could you give yourself over to Morgoth? Yeah. Meanwhile, these are humans are just, they're just normal humans. These are just like all of us, right? Yeah. So uh, the Southlands are under a, uh, under a siege, although they don't know it for the longest time because the orcs who can't bear sunlight uh, have been digging tunnels mm-hmm. and yeah. they've been attacking through tunnels and those tunnels served dual purpose there was more than one reason for these tunnels uh but there's this whole story arc there and again some intervent some interaction between a group of elves and these humans uh and definitely it said some things about racism there what do you think krebs uh can i just say the depiction of the orcs is probably my favorite racial depiction across the entire series uh in that a single orc finds its way into a human village and wreaks utter havoc and terror. And it's extremely hard to kill. And I love that too often in movies, we take something that is supposed to be a killing machine. And thanks to the virtue of plot armor, the one mission it has, it cannot possibly fulfill, but all of the like NPCs and the side characters that we care nothing about absolute cannon fodder, but these killing these supposed killing machines cannot do their job this show does not suffer from that in the same way yes there is plot armor i get that but the way they depicted the orcs made them genuinely terrifying a genuine threat a single orc is a genuine threat and then when you have an army of them it just increases that sense of jeopardy uh how are the humans going to fight that off if they have such a hard time killing just one uh it's uh, absolutely, I think my favorite depiction of orcs in any media so far oh, to date. No, I agree. I mean, especially that the, when that one jumps up with Bronwyn and, and, and her son, and I mean, they're stabbing it and hacking at it. And finally, it takes them to wrap a rope and hang it. And then she chops its head off. And then, you know, then the, my favorite part of that, she walks in and slams it down and says, okay, now who's leaving? Um, <laughs> but that is the one thing that I will say that this series does very well, that both men and women are equally powerful. Yes. You know, there is, she, you know, she's not the helpless maiden. Yeah. You know, she, she takes out an orc, probably the first orc they've seen in years. 
if not over a decade or, or more. I can't remember the time the time frame. And then she's still, I mean, she's standing on top. You know, I, I'm not the king that you expected to have, but who will stand near me? Because they're coming for us. Um, I really like that. Yes, she is. There are other people working against her, but she's still staying strong to that conviction. You know, the the Queen Regent is a very strong, powerful character. So mm-hmm. is Galadriel. We don't need to weaken the male characters or the female characters to get solid, wonderful well-written and well-developed characters uh yeah so i i want to jump on that just really fast because i agree with you men and women are equal in this in this show in a non uh artificial way yeah uh the the men and women are equally strong and they are equally flawed yeah Uh, and i love that in this show it's the equality that's expressed in this show is not artificially won and i love that that's so rare these days earned absolutely um one of the things I noticed in this is that of all the races there, the humans were the most uh, fractured. Mm-hmm. They had, uh, while there were some internal conflicts among the elves, it was like, we're going to have this discussion internally because we all need to support a unified front to everybody outside. The dwarves, it was a big deal that Durin argued with his dad. Yeah. And uh, even still, they wanted to maintain a unified, this is the dwarven position to the elves and the humans and whoever else were out there. But the humans, the Numenorians didn't care so much about their Southlander brothers and the Southlanders. There were some who were like, well, Morgoth wasn't all that bad. And others that were like, what are you talking about? He was pure evil. And this whole argument, you brought the example of we need to leave and they wouldn't. So it really kind of portrayed the humans as very argumentative and not unified at all. Well, I, I, I think that's the point. Yeah. You know, uh, in the series, throughout all of the the story, the elves have stood true to their convictions. Yes, they still have their inner conflict. That so do the dwarves, but the humans of all you know throughout fantasy, the humans are always the ones that are the easiestly swayed, and I think that's why you know we have the rise of Morgoth. That's why we have the rise of Sauron, and that's why we have where the rings of power that were given to man swayed so heavily to turn them to the darkness because they are easily swayed you know and i i do believe that's why you know the one ring that was part of humanity was given that extra bit of evil to sway them become the race and then when that did fall into the hands of a hobbit you know it corrupted him completely and totally to the point that you know we we smeagol became golem and then started infecting bilbo and started affecting Frodo, because I do believe that they are the easiest to sway, and that that I, I think a part of that, because all magic items kind of absorb part of that. I think part of that came into that item that was passed down. All right, then we we just mentioned him in passing, but the last human storyline deals with this Halbrand character mm-hmm. uh, who carries this talisman of the lost king of the Southlands. And he's very reluctant to embrace that identity. Uh, and he travels with Galadriel, although it's he's always got something else going on and he's 
he's even more reluctant to do what everybody knows he needs to is, he should be doing which is helping Galadriel and go back and reclaim the Southlands as their lost mm-hmm. king and and save everybody right and it's, it's took, it takes an awful lot of effort to convince him to do that and he seems to also have um, an uncommon fascination with smithies <laughs> uh, so what did you guys, uh, very very quick because we're running short on time here uh, Krebs what's your take on, on Halbrand uh, I I loved the Halbrand character. I love that um, you know they they took all the formula that made Aragorn Aragorn, and they gave us a, a human that we could rally around in that way. Uh, I think Halbrand is the Aragorn of the series, um, and his story is very similar. You know, a, a king without a kingdom, um, sort of lost and adrift in his own life, both literally and figuratively. Uh, but he has certain talents and he has certain services and his politics, his ability to sway through political uh, uh, discourse is incredible. Like his character has so much depth, depth and so much um, like multifacetedness. Uh, so I, I actually really liked the Halbrand character. I mean, he's, we're definitely playing on a trope here with, with this character, you know, he, we sure are. Yeah. Um, you know, he's the reluctant hero. Uh, he definitely doesn't want to be involved. And, you know, when we're also repeating a pattern, you know, like you said with Aragorn, it's it, it very similar, it, it very similar. Um, the only real difference is um, not. I mean, it's, it's he, his ancestors followed Morgoth. You know, he's mm. a disgraced king, really, with no kingdom, you know, and, you know, um, on Aragorn, the flip side with Aragorn, you know, his great ancestor was Isildur. That, <laughs> yeah, we don't need to go much more into that. So it is the same pattern, but it works. It does. It works for this series because we're expecting that. And not only does it work because we're expecting that, but because it's well written. Yeah. We have a character that we we already want to see succeed we want to see him uh, achieve that status we want him to be the valiant hero despite the fact that he is not willing to jump into it but he has those traits despite his ancestry despite the faults of that ancestry he is a good guy and he's a great king and he has the ability to be an even greater king if he would step into that role Mm. and want to see that happen absolutely so the series set out almost from the very first episode with the shadow of Sauron. And so the, the question running through every episode is who is Sauron or who's going to be revealed to be Sauron? Mm-hmm. So of all the characters we've talked about tonight, who were the people that the s- stories tried to identify as who were the candidates to become Sauron? That's what I'm asking as based on the way that the stories went, who were the possibilities? Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, who do you think? Daniel, Daniel, you go first, and I'll tell you who I was thinking. I don't think any of the characters we've seen in the series are candidates to be him. I completely believe, because, I mean, we, we know he's a powerful sorcerer. I believe he's, he's trapped in the hilt, and that's why they're searching for the hilt, and they need that because it, it's his philactrophy in a way you know he knew he was being defeated so he magically pulled himself into that he made a horcrux yeah atrophy, <laughs> whatever you want to call it but i that's really where i believe 
that Sauron is. I, I think his physical form was defeated, destroyed. And so he pulled himself into there. He, he may possess someone else. So we may get one of these characters that he ends up possessing, but I don't believe that they are him and that we will see that later on. And again, because we've already seen him exist outside of his body. So we know this is an ability that he has. Yeah. What about, um, what about you, Krebs? For me, the candidates, uh, when, when the stranger landed, like the, the very first time we see him, I was leaning toward Gandalf, but I was honestly 50-50 Gandalf Sauron. Um, as the show progressed, I think actually as of episode two, I was pretty hardcore that the stranger was Gandalf. But there was a point in the series past that where I started to question if maybe he was Sauron. Because um, either way they played it, I thought it was brilliant that the stranger could be either one. Uh, then we meet Adar, and uh, and he's the most obvious choice to be Sauron, especially because my understanding was that Sauron was himself an elf. Um, I, I knew he was a sorcerer. I thought he was also um, elfin. Uh, he's, a, he's a Valar, so. Yeah, uh, so so he's, I mean, the Valar, I mean, Valinor and everything, isn't that elvish? No, so no, he's not that Valar. Valar are human Valar. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay, okay. I misunderstood. So he, he's, he would be equal to, to uh, Gandalf because Gandalf okay. is Valar. All right, all right. That makes sense. I misunderstood what Valar meant. Okay, so um, so I, I thought Adar was a great choice, but also the too obvious choice. Yeah. Um, because I thought Sauron was elvish, I thought maybe um, Erondir could potentially, through tragedy, through betrayal through um you know his feelings toward uh, you know humans who Bronwyn. betrayed them yeah Bronwyn yeah. and everything I thought maybe he could be corrupted uh and then um uh, let's see were there any others that I thought were good candidates for Sauron uh I, I think that was it I think those were the those were the three people I was looking at for for Sauron was the stranger a little bit but mostly I thought he was Gandalf um uh Adar who I thought was the most obvious choice, but for that reason, maybe not the best choice and Erondir, which I hoped was not the case. Yeah. I stranger was, was a real obvious one from the beginning uh, as was Adar. Um, and then I, then there was Theo Bronwyn's son, Theo, cause he found the oh, sword yeah. and mm. I thought, Oh, this is this. He could be corrupted and become a vessel for Sauron. And then it wasn't until the later episodes, because I was I completely missed it. Towards the later episodes, I began to suspect Halbrand. Interesting. Mm. So, uh, all right, um, you know, being a parent, you have uh, sometimes sometimes you catch your kids doing some some stuff. Well, <laughs> the other day, uh, I I came home to find that my kids had been on eBay all day. Oh no! Can you believe that, oh, man? If they're still there tomorrow, I'm probably going to lower the price. Oh, oh! <laughs> but was the reserve met? Wow! <laughs> uh, I, 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 I actually I was going somewhere, and it just totally <laughs> went nowhere. You fool! Oh. oh man, it's I, almost like he used. It's almost like he set up a great story, one that you could believe, only to subvert your expectations. I know. Well, and I also caught my son chewing on an extension cord. Oh, really? Yeah. So I had to ground him. Oh, he's oh. Con he's conducting himself better currently. 
Did you use copper for that? <laughs> copper tone. Oh. Oh. Okay. Uh, so with that little intermission, I will I'm, uh... admit, I will admit, those were some really good. Ones. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> All right, I finally got one. Um, so yeah, just, just let's wrap up the show here a little bit. Thinking of the series as a whole, Amazon dumped a huge amount of money into this. Yes. So now consider production values, settings, uh, costumes, casting um, there. And and more than just the writing, there was a certain there, there's dialogue, there's accents, mm-hmm. there's nuances to the language that are going there, as well as the special effects and everything. So all of that together Give me your 30 second thoughts on the production of the series. And let's start with uh, Daniel. I think they did a fantastic job. If, I mean, again, because I saw, you know, Will of Time, I had a lot of concerns. This actually feels like, you know, if I were to crack open a, a book that Tolkien wrote and it magically projected itself out so that I could watch it. I really feel this is as close as we could probably get without Tolkien actually doing it, really. Um, I feel like they have a, whoever is running the show has really knows the tone for elves and dwarves that I, I love the accent of the dwarves. I love how mm-hmm. they talk that you, you can, what, you know, the stone breaking challenge just felt dwarf like it really did. Um with the Harbles, I mean, I, I just really felt like every episode I was watching, I was wandering the lands of Middle Earth or Numenor or, or, or even when the clouds parted to go to, to Valor, uh, the Elven lands. Um, it really felt like I was a part of that universe, which is beautiful. It, I mean, when you can subsert, sub, yeah, I, I'm getting subvert, subvert, you know, that and invest your 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 viewers in such a fashion that they feel like they're a part of that like they're just they're another one of the harvels walking along the trail or another elf that is watching elrond speak or another dwarf i think you did a great job and they did that with this yeah i i totally agree this was cinematic level quality i was sucked in from the very start the if they don't win awards for art direction um, effects and post-production and music. Uh, thank you, Bear McCreary, for the music. Uh, I I don't. I, I if they don't win awards, then then I I have no faith in awards ever again. Uh, and if there's one criticism that I have, or rather, if there's one regret, it's not even a criticism. If there's one regret that I have with this show, it's that I was already struggling to find good things in the Wheel of Time series. And this <laughs> series showed me what it could have been. Uh-huh. It's like it's like yeah. Rings of Power is a better Wheel of Time series than the Wheel of Time. Uh, and I am I'm actually uh, even more irritated than I previously was at the Wheel of Time series for and and I realize we don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but yeah. part of me wonders if like the investment in the rings of power somehow siphoned resources from wheel of time, because I can't believe that the same production house that made this beautiful, incredible cinematic series of, of eight episodes could not give that same treatment to wheel of time, uh, which richly deserved it as well. So yeah, that's, that's my only regret. I think this series is phenomenal and i utterly adore it 
I would, I, I, I'd have to think that they've learned from their mistakes real time. That's why we're getting a better means of power. No, yeah. you're, you're absolutely right. I, I could be wrong. But that that's what I would have to assume. I, I already want Amazon to reboot Wheel Time and just try again. <laughs> yeah. Well, they um, of, of the two, when you've got these two great epic fantasies, the Lord of the Rings not only has a longer track record, but it already had a more successful track record with the series of movies. And that's so true. they had a, a bar. They had a standard they had to live up to. But they didn't, but they'd never done this before. This is probably the most ambitious thing that Amazon Studios has ever undertaken. So Wheel of Time really was them cutting their teeth. And they did, there was some things with Wheel of Time where the production was pretty amazing for the budget that they had. But the, and, they, and some of the directors, I believe, were directed an episode of Wheel of Time before they went over to direct things on Rings yeah. of Power. And so absolutely, the wheel of time was the proving ground before they went and did the, you know, the, the, the big production on rings of power. And I agree with you, Krebs. It's like, Oh man, this only makes me realize what wheel of time could have been. Right. Uh, if they had put, and that was the complaint that most people have is that this show needed more money. They were on the, they did a lot of good things. They could have done more and there'd be less to complain about if they had the budget to, to do it with. But back to Rings of Power, the production of it, um, the casting, there were a few interesting choices on the casting. But I honestly, looking at the whole th the thing as a whole, I couldn't find one thing wrong with the production. There weren't any janky effects. There weren't any bad makeup or costumes. The makeup looked incredibly good. Yes. Uh, look at the dwarves. I oh. mean, and the prosthetics that they had to wear. I'm sure there were mistakes in there someplace. Um, a bad matte painting or a set or a special effect CGI that didn't, they didn't quite have enough time to get as polished as they like. But if it was there, there were so many good things going on. It escaped my notice. Yeah. And so I can't see anything wrong with the production there. I loved it. Um, even when I wasn't necessarily enjoying the story, it was a visual spectacle and oral, you know, audio, uh, the music on it, the sound effects, uh, everything. I was so, I, I, I could enjoy it for that alone. Absolutely. So, uh, final question here, compare the rings of power to the wheel of time. I've kind of given my, uh, my, my take on that. Um, what do you think? Uh, rings of power is what wheel of time should have been. Uh, you said that they cut their teeth on wheel of time and I kind of want to punch prime right in the face for that. <laughs> Because if you're going to cut, if you're going to cut your teeth on fantasy after the success of Peter Jackson in the early 2000s with with the Lord of the Rings film series, if you're going to cut your teeth as a production house on fantasy, then choose something else. Choose something like, and this is not meant to be a, a slam or anything, but choose something like the Sword of Shannara, which has never been done well. Uh, do choose something. If you really want to cut your teeth and you want to have a little fun, choose Robert Asprin's myth series oh because you gosh. could have you could have a gigaton. Could you imagine? We need to do an episode on that. <laughs> I know, right? Could you imagine if Chris O'Dowd 
was like in a myth series. Uh, you know, I, just, just uh, there are so many options here. If you're going to cut your teeth on something, cut your teeth on something of less consequence than something like the Wheel of Time. Could you imagine if they cut their teeth on Tolkien first and then did Wheel of Time? There would be that would that There'd would be, be the reason. In the street. That would be reason we would fall into a war with the shadow, right? Like it just yeah. it's terrible. But um, but I, I Rings of Power absolutely sets a standard that now Prime has to live up to going forward, both for this series and for any other epic fantasy that they do. I'm, I'm kind of hoping because Wheel of Time was successful enough to get two more seasons greenlit uh, and Rings of Power has gotten so much acclaim. I'm hoping the success on Rings of Power will bring up the quality in the next couple of seasons. I hope so. Time. I hope so. I, I'm, I'm certain it will. It will bring up the quality because, you know, uh, They've seen what can be done when you put a little bit more money, put a little bit more time, get good writing in. Um, it, you know, it's no different than a first-time writer, really. You know, you you put out the material, you realize the mistakes you made, you move forward. Um, Will of Time definitely was a disappointment. Um, there were several things that they did that were just not great. Uh, you know, the magic looked fairly hokey. Um, I don't know. I I like the weaves. They should have done multicolored threads, but yeah, that's another it, topic. Well, it could have been done better. It, it just looked kind of hokey. It didn't look natural. It didn't look like something I would have expected. Um, and there were some interesting choices that they made with storylines. Overall, uh, with Rings of Power, I feel like it was very strong in their storylines. It wasn't hokey. They didn't try to you know, it was really, in my opinion, written for the fans. It was written for the people that love this material. It wasn't, hey, let's let's see how artistic we can make this. You know, and a lot of these IPs out there, it's kind of like, well, we're going to do this our way instead of, you know, we, our, our fans are who provide us with our income that continue to give us the numbers. Let's focus on making it for them. And I think they did that this time. They focused on the people that were going to watch this. And if they did this wrong, you're right. There would have been rioting in the streets and who knows what would have happened to Amazon after that. Well, if anything, Rings of Power taught me that like everything that Prime tried or that Amazon tried to do and failed, in my opinion, with Wheel of Time, they tried and succeeded with the Rings of Power. If, if nothing else, this has shown me that like, uh, you know, when when agenda, when personal agenda overrides craft and story, you fail. But it's possible to use craft and story and still satisfy your worldview. It's still possible. Yeah. Uh, but you can't make agenda the centerpiece. You have to make the story the most important thing. Yeah. Yes. All right. So out of out of five stars, uh, quick, what's your rating, Krebs? Five. Uh, as the one coming as the one coming into this late because I didn't want to watch it because of everything that was happening with Will of Time, I will give it a five. Wow. Um, there were some deficiencies in the story and the writing, but the production was so good. Um, they kind of uh, cancel each other out. I was going to give it a four. It had room for improvement. Um, uh, so for me, it's four stars. 
But I definitely would recommend it to people who love fantasy to to watch the show. Yeah, I want to recognize, I want to take a moment and recognize that just because I gave it five out of five does not mean that I think it's a perfect show. I realize that the score kind of suggests that. But rather, um, I'm not one who believes something has to be flawless for it to be great. Uh, and and for it to earn full accolades, it's okay for something to have flaws because then it's actually more endearing, uh, in many ways. So I, I'm de- I agree with you, Matai. I'm giving it a five, not because it's a perfect show, because it's an imperfect show, brilliantly executed. Yeah. Well, I mean, look at uh, all the movies in the past. Uh, you know that have have won awards for you know greatest picture, you know for that year or whatever. They still have flaws in them. There's still mistakes, whether that's, you know, a wrong soundbite or someone, you know, I mean, come on, Lord of the Rings was won awards like crazy. And there's a scene where you see Gandalf with a hand, uh, with a watch on his wrist uh, that shouldn't exist. There are small flaws and things that still make it through, but that doesn't take away that it wasn't a fantastic film. Um, it's no different than a book. You know, there are mistakes and flaws in, even in books, um, but it doesn't take away the fact that it's a fantastic, wonderful book. So, with that said, folks, you know, hopefully you, you've enjoyed our conversation on this uh, this topic with Rings of Power. Uh, as you can tell, we've all enjoyed this series. We are very excited with the direction it's going. We hope that not only is the next season just as fantastic and amazing, but we hope that that elevates maybe even the Will of Time series for the next season or two, that that will help improve that because they've seen what formula works. But what is your thoughts? What's your opinion on it? Did you like it? Did you not like it? Uh, as a non-Tolkien you know, or Lord of the Rings fan, did you enjoy it? As a Tolkien or Lord of the Rings fan, did you find it fascinating or amazing? Or maybe you didn't. Let us know your thoughts. However, it, whichever way you go, uh, it is exciting to see this element of fantasy on the small screen. I mean, it's been really enjoyable to see that because I feel like we've gotten time to flesh out characters in a much deeper, much richer way than we could probably get in a film. So, but we're out of time. So choose the high ground and we'll catch you next time. And my friends, let your geek flag fly. So say we all. And whether you would run screaming for the hills as Morgoth's army invades, or you would stand and fight along your elven and human brethren, always remember to be epic and don't suck. Remember, the force will be with you always.